John, John begins his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And I, I think we need to hit the pause button for a moment and, and to, to think about what we just read. I mean, we're talking about someone. We're talking about a being who is, has, and always will be extremely significant. I mean, we're talking about the one who made absolutely everything. And there's a lot of everything out there. That's crazy. That's huge. He's significant. And then John writes, in him was life. In him was what? In him was, it was life. You see, life is not found in any place else. Pseudo-life is, right? Sometimes we think life is found in our job, in our career, in our relationship, but true lasting life is found only in him. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, will not, and never will overcome it. The word that was in the beginning, the word that is God, the word that made everything, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among finite, frail, fallen, messed up human beings like you and like me. And I thought about that this week when I was taking out the garbage. And as I threw a bag into the can and got ready to drag it up the driveway, I noticed there was a lot of little maggots crawling around in the garbage can. <clears throat> and, and I thought about how if, if I wanted those maggots to know that I really loved them and cared about them, I would have to become a maggot and, 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 and reveal myself to these maggots. And I, I don't really like maggots that much, and I probably would never do that, right? No, I never would do that. <laughs> but God took a bigger step down. This God who created everything, this God that is and always has been, he put on flesh where he knew limitations and he knew pain where he could be beaten and broken and pierced and nailed. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John says, we, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about. Now, when I said that he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was born before me. Out of his fullness. I love that. We have all received grace in place of the grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come into your presence of the one whose love never fails and the presence of the one who works all things together for our good. And the presence of the one who, when fear assails and darkness falls, gives us a strength that is not of our own. And God, I pray that as we open your word today, God, that we may not be passive, but that we be active, God. That we may listen to your word like those, like those dried out, scattered bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, and that your word would breathe life into us. God, help us to hear what we need to hear. God, help me to say what needs to be said. Help, help me to hear what I need to hear today. 
Help me to see you, God. I, I need to see you. I need to hear you. I need to feel your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. This week we're kicking off a new series that will take us to October the 12th when we roll out our three-year strategic plan. The series, I'm calling the series, Never the Same. And in the series, we're going to flip through the pages of the gospel and we're going to meet some people, people who had an encounter with Jesus, an encounter that left them never the same. I mean like a slimy green caterpillar crawling into a cocoon. They were this person when they met Jesus. And when they left that encounter, they were someone completely different. A change, a transformation took place. Kind of like what Chris was talking about in the video we just watched. I understand, there's something about having an encounter with God. There's something about having an encounter with the one who was and is and always will be. There's something about having an encounter with the one who made everything. There's something about having an encounter with the word become flesh that changes us. We're just not the same people anymore. And listen, if God made and shaped this universe, he can make and shape our lives as well. Amen? And if you think about it, never the same as the perfect conversation to have as we prepare to to roll out our three-year strategic plan. After all, our our vision statement is following Christ in life-changing community. Understand, at Maple Grove, our goal, our, our desire is not to be driven by budgets, by programs, by events, by buildings, by the opinions of people. Instead, we want to be driven by life change. We want to be driven by seeing people become something new, something different, something better. In fact, if life change is not happening, if people's lives are not changing in this place, then we have lost our vision, we are off mission, and we are pretty much just wasting our time. I mean, we should have stayed home and washed the car and did our laundry because we're not accomplishing what we need to. But listen, the good news is, is that life change will happen, is happening, and will always happen when someone is following Jesus, when they're encountering the living Christ. Life change, it's just automatic. Get it? Good. And again, the next several weeks, we're going we're gonna to be looking at several encounters that Jesus had with real people, encounters that radically changed their lives, encounters that left them never the same. Now, now for years, these encounters that, that Jesus had with sinners and saints, enemies and outcasts, young and old, rich and poor, the faithful and the doubtful, they've always fascinated me for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, uh, because Jesus was not required to have them. Now, understand, 2,000 years ago, Jesus could have put on human flesh, visited this lost and broken world, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, been that pure and spotless sacrifice without ever really hanging out and being with people. I mean, did the Messiah really have to eat with them, laugh with them, walk with them, cry with them, and live with them in order to die for them? Listen, Jesus could have walked this earth, completed his mission of dealing with the sins of mankind and never had any deep and personal relationships with people whatsoever. But praise God, that is not what the Son of Man did. Because rescuing us from our sins was not his primary motivation. You see, Jesus came to this earth and he endured a lot of stuff. 
pain, suffering, rejection, betrayal, hatred, mocking, scourging, and crucifixion, not merely to rescue me from my sins, but to restore a broken relationship. Jesus did that so that I could be with him and so that he could be with me. Jesus did that so that he could be with you and that you could be with him. And listen, Jesus would do and did whatever it took to remove the barrier so that he could be with us forever. And the truth is, Jesus Christ would gladly do it all again. You see, the, it is the gospel. It's not only that, that, that Jesus wants to save me, but that Jesus wants to be with me. Right here, right now. The, the one who created everything. The one who carved out the universe with just his words wants to be with me, and he wants to be with you. Amen? That's crazy. And the second reason these encounters have always fascinated me me is because when you slow down and, and you take time to really look at them and see what's going on, we see that they reveal so much about God, so much about us, and so much about God and us. And listen, I'm convinced that every encounter that we'll look at in the coming weeks If we come with an open mind and a hungry heart, is that how you came this morning? I mean, that's your choice, right? I'm convinced that if we do that, we will find ourselves in those encounters. We will find ourselves with these people. We will find ourselves in the presence of the Savior King, the Word become flesh, and that that just as he changed lives 2,000 years ago, we will find that he still changes lives today and leaves us never the same. The first encounter we're going to look at takes place in John chapter 8, and if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it, open up your Bible app, you know, look on the screen, and, and, and here, here's how I, I want to do this. I, I'm going to first tell the story, and then I'm going to talk about, you know, four key truths, four uh, key thoughts that really resonate from this story. All right, let's do this. The story, scene one, a woman is caught. John writes, early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and Pharisees brought a woman they had caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now this counter begins early one morning when a crowd had gathered around Jesus and he began to teach them. You see, the, the Feast of Tabernacles has just come to an end. It, it was a feast that Jesus attended, and as always, Jesus drew attention, and he caused a ruckus, I always like that word, he caused a ruckus among the Jewish leaders. And in fact, in John chapter 7, which records what happened the previous day, uh, the Jewish leaders sent temple guards to arrest, arrest Jesus two times. And the second time, when they came back empty-handed, uh, the Jewish leaders said, hey, why didn't you bring him back? And all they could say was, nobody ever spoke the way this guy speaks. And you see, they had been there and heard Jesus say this. And I think they needed to hear it, because I think they were pretty thirsty. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. And anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from inside of him. Listen, since the 
the feast just ended, there was a huge crowd in Jerusalem. And as Jesus sits there teaching the people, uh, a, a bunch of guys, and you know, a group of guys that are surrounding an embarrassed woman, they push their way through the crowd to the front, and eventually they're standing in front of Jesus before the entire crowd. Imagine that. Now, now who are these guys? They, they are the teachers of the law and Pharisees. They, they are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. They are well-educated, well-known, and were supposed to be men of wisdom and high moral standards. I mean, if anyone had a question about the law of Moses, these were the guys that you asked. These are the guys that had the answer. But although they were religious, they were not godly. And their intentions this day were not good. In fact, as this story unfolds, we're going to discover that they are proud, self-confident, arrogant, ruthless, cunning, clever, calculating, and thoroughly hypocritical. And as my mind focused in on the scene, a bunch of questions popped into my mind. Now, questions I really don't have the answers to. Like, 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 who was this woman? We don't know. I mean, was she single? Was she engaged? Was she married? We don't know. Uh, uh, did she have any previous relationships with the guys who brought her before Jesus? We don't know. Is she young? Is she middle-aged? Is she old? We don't know. You see, the text tells us all that we know about her. Everything else is speculation. And another question I have is, how did these guys, I mean, I don't think they had any surveillance cameras, how did these guys catch her in the very act of adultery? I mean, something fishy seems to be going on. I mean, where's the guy? Right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think adultery requires two people. You know, it takes two to tango, right? So, so why didn't they bring the guy? Scene one, a woman is caught. Scene two, the trap is set. Or so they think. It, I guess the trap was on them. Teacher, they said to Jesus. Huge crowd. Imagine how she felt. This woman was caught in very active adultery. The law of Moses says to stoner, what do you say? And they're trying to trap him and they're saying something that they could use against him. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that these religious leaders, they didn't care anything about the woman. Uh, they didn't even care anything about her sin for that matter. You know, this lady, was, she was merely a tool. She was merely a means to get to Jesus. And understand, by, by, by throwing this woman, still clinging to her nightgown at the feet of Jesus, these Jewish leaders hoped to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. You see, on the one hand, if Jesus said, hey, yeah, we need to stone her, he could be accused of rebelling against Rome because the Jews had no authority to execute anybody. That's why Pilate had to get permission. And not only that, if Jesus said stone her, he could lose face with the crowd because many of them followed him because of his great compassion. But on the other hand, if Jesus said, hey, don't stone her, then, then he would be seen to go, be going against the law of Moses, right, and, and putting himself against Moses himself. Either way, he'd be in trouble, right? He's, he's caught between a, a rock and a hard place, or so they thought. You see, though the scheme may have worked with an ordinary teacher, uh, these guys are dealing with Jesus, the Word become flesh. And before these guys could say supercalifragilistic, expialidocious, Jesus would overturn the tables of their plan on them. Again, scene two, the trap is laid. What will Jesus do? Scene three, a challenge is made. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, as these guys were planning, I, I don't think this response of Jesus showed up on their list. Stooping down and writing in the sand. 
and, and I kind of think, you know, thoughts are just going in their mind. Like, okay, what is he doing on the ground? Didn't he hear our question? Why isn't he answering? What is he writing? Why is everybody staring at us? And why is the back of my neck really starting to sweat here? John writes, they keep demanding an answer. I wonder how long, how long did Jesus stoop down there, writing in the dust? And I wonder, what was he thinking? Maybe he was thinking about the first time his hands touched dirt back in the beginning, when he took dust from the earth and he formed the very first man. I mean, Jesus knew where man came from, from the dust. He knew where man was going. He knew who man was. So Jesus keeps stooping, and they keep demanding. And then we read, so he stood up again and said, and I kind of I picture when he stood up, they're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up here a little bit. It's a scary dude. All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And you know, there are times that I study the Bible, and I'm like, could I just get a little bit more information? I mean, what in the world was Jesus writing when he stooped down? Did anybody, you know, peek over his shoulder? Hey, what is it? Now, the word used there for write, it means either like to doodle or to make a list. And over the years, there have been lots of speculation about what he wrote. Uh, Some thought that he wrote out the Ten Commandments to remind the men of what sin is. Uh, Others have suggested that he wrote the names of the accusers by the commandments they had broken. Jesse, adultery. Joe, murder. Jacob, coveting, Reuben, lying, and so on. Various scriptures have been suggested, and more than one has suggested that what Jesus wrote in the sand was the names of these guys' girlfriends. <laughs> again, again, we don't know. But it, uh, evidently what he wrote wasn't important, but it's what he said that mattered. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, who was probably out in front, closest to Jesus, and couldn't get out of there fast enough, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Talk about a counter move. Talk about a reversal. Scene four, pardon is given. Then Jesus stood up again, a lot of stooping and standing, and he said to the woman, and you know, I wonder... Why didn't she leave, you know, like when the last rock fell and the last guy ran away from the presence of Jesus? Why did she just take off? Maybe because there was just something about Jesus that made her want to stay. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. In other words... He's saying to her, yes, you have committed adultery, but there's more to your life than your sin. By the way, sin goes for you. There's more to your life than your sin. You can be so much more than you have been. You can turn from this sin once and for all. You can live a new life. Neither do I go and sin no more. I mean, I I love how how Jesus treats this, this lady, this sinful woman. He faced her, he he stood up, he questioned her, where are they? He forgave her, neither do I condemn you. And he challenged her. 
go and sin no more. You know, it's kind of ironic that the only one who qualified to stone her didn't. Okay, that's the story. And now for some you know, powerful truths that, that it resonated to me as I try to dive into this encounter this week. Number one, she was expecting condemnation. And who could blame her, right? I mean, one moment she's in, be, in, the, in bed with some guy, supposedly her lover, and the next she's being yanked out of his embrace. Get up, you harlot. What kind of woman do you think you are? Uh, they slam open the bedroom door. They, they march her through the living room. And, and before she felt the warmth of the morning sun on her face, she felt the sting of their scorn. Shame on you. Pathetic. Disgusting. I mean, she barely had time to cover her body before they march her through the narrow streets of the town. Dogs barked. Women leaned out their window to see what was going on. Mothers snatched their children off the path. Merchants peered out the doors of their shops. And in a very uncomfortable moment, all of Jerusalem became a jury, rendering its verdict with disapproving glares and crossed arms. And as if the, the bedroom raid and the, the parade of shame wasn't bad enough, these men take her to the temple and throw her into the middle of a morning Bible school class. I mean, try... What if that happened right now? I mean, try to imagine what this woman was feeling. I mean, she had no exit. There was no place to run. And denied the accusations, she'd been caught. Plead for mercy from who? From God? God's men were the ones who were holding stones and, and, and shouting their contempt. A guy named F.B. Myers made the following statement. It is a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of his fellow sinners. It's true, isn't it? That's no place I want to be. Yes, mankind is quite proficient at condemnation and accusation. Jesus asks, where are your accusers? What a question. And, and not just for her, but for us. I, I mean, voices of condemnation shout to us as well, don't they? You aren't good enough. You'll never improve. You failed again. All you do is screw up. You're weak. You're fearful. You're dirty. You're pathetic. The voices in our world and the voices in our heads. Question, who is this morality police who issues a citation every time we fall and stumble? Who is it that, that reminds us of every mistake we've ever made, and will he ever shut up? No, he won't shut up, because Satan never shuts up. The apostle John called him the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. The great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heaven, for the accuser has been thrown down to earth, the one who accused our brothers and sisters before God day and night. Yet day after day, hour after hour, relentless, tireless, the accuser makes a career of accusing. And unlike the Holy Spirit, Satan's condemnation brings no repentance or resolve, but just regret. Understand, his aim is to steal, to kill, and destroy. To steal our peace, to, to kill our dreams. 
to destroy our future. And, and, and he has recruited an army of silver-tongued demons to help him. He enlists people to peddle his poison. Friends keep dredging up our past. And, and, and preachers proclaim more guilt than they proclaim the grace of God. You see, condemnation is the preferred commodity of Satan. And, and listen, he will repeat the adulterous woman scenario as often as you and I permit him to do so. He will grab us from the beds. He will march us through the streets. He will drag our name through the mud. He will push us into the center of the crowd. And with a megaphone in his hand, he will expose our sin. This person was caught in immorality. This person was caught in stupidity and dishonesty and irresponsibility. But listen, the accusers did not have the last word in John 8. Jesus did. And the accuser does not have the last word today. Jesus does. She was expecting condemnation. Question. What do we, what do you expect? When you're caught, when you're caught naked in the bed of your sins, mistakes, and failures. She was expecting condemnation, but she found that grace happens here. Grace happens where? Grace happens at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you think about it, there there was really no better place that these hypocritical, hard-hearted, self-righteous, stiff-necked, ruthless, cruel, angry religious leaders could have thrown this woman than at the feet of Jesus, the place where grace happens. And if you think about it, of the two people caught in adultery, you know, she was the lucky one. And not the guy who appeared to be getting away scot-free. He carried his sin with him. And she was the lucky one because she and her sin was thrown at the feet of Jesus, the place where grace happens. You know, in the, in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, great movie, you know, he takes some creative license and he, he imagines that, that this woman who was caught in adultery in John 8 is one of the women who was with Mary, the mother of Jesus, when he was beaten and crucified. And there's a powerful scene, one of the many powerful scenes in the movie, where, where, where this woman who was caught in adultery, she's with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus had just been scourged, and his body dragged out of the area, and, and the ground is covered and soaked in blood. And along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's, she's wiping up the blood of Jesus, the blood that unleashed the grace of God. And, 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 and as she's doing that, her mind flashes back to the day when she was dragged and thrown at the feet of Jesus. Her mind went back to the day that she first tasted the grace of God. And we put together a little video um, of that scene from Passion of Christ. And it's, there's a song playing by a, a group called Russia Fools. You know, we're, we're a bunch of fools in this room, right? Russia Fools. And and the song is, is called Undo, and how you know, only God can undo the things that we become. So if you need a little taste of grace, you know, just put yourself into this moment and know that grace always happens at the feet of Jesus. She was expecting condemnation, but she found that grace happens at the feet of Jesus. 
Grace always happens at the feet of Jesus. And I understand grace has the power to undo, to undo anything we become, anything that we've done. John 3.17 reads, God sent his son into the world not to, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore, because of what Jesus did, therefore there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Wow. And listen, just as grace shut down the voices of the accusers that day, grace shuts down the voices of our accusers today. As we fall at Jesus' feet, and as we watch Jesus in turn in the presence of God, in defiance of Satan, in knowledge of our sin, full of grace and mercy, rise to our defense. Grace happens at the feet of Jesus. The next key truth is that grace, it is who God is. John 1 verse 14, John writes, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who comes from the Father, came from the Father, full of full of grace and truth. He's full of it. God is full of it. (laughs) In a good way, God. Hold on, let me finish that thought, God. God is full of it. He's full of grace, and he's full of truth, and he's full of mercy. And from Genesis to Revelation, you see God's grace finding his people. And a lot of times, those very people, they, they were expecting condemnation. When Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes because they disobeyed God and rebelled, they were were expecting only condemnation. And in that encounter, you know, the the question of the ages was answered for us. How How will a holy, righteous, and sovereign God respond to the rebellion of his people? By dispensing and unleashing his amazing grace. And listen, as you flip through the Old Testament... As God deals with the nation of Israel again and 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 again for hundreds of years, he sends deliverance and he sends promises of a Messiah. Grace found Jonah in the belly of a great fish and he spit him out at a beach resort in Nineveh. And we see grace displayed in all its beauty in the life of Peter. Uh, and I mean, Peter was the one that made these great promises and experienced a great fall, but, but not only was Peter forgiven, but God gave Peter the joy and the opportunity to preach the very first gospel sermon of all time in Acts chapter 2, opening up the terms of the new covenant for the ages. I mean, no wonder he was hung up on grace. No wonder, as we talked about as we finished that letter in 1 Peter, no, no wonder as he began that letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he said, may God give you more and more grace. And no wonder when he ended that letter in chapter 5, verse 12, he said this, stand firm in this grace. Grace. 
How does our God respond to mankind? How does God respond to you and I ignoring, abusing, misusing, turning away, and spitting on his goodness? By dispensing his amazing grace. By giving us precisely what we don't deserve, his unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Wow, are you kidding me? And it's, yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. And in the story of the prodigal son, uh, we, we see frame grace in all its beauty. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He, he, he ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son, and he kissed him, and the son was expecting condemnation. The son said to him, Father, I, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, shut up, son, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put, 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 put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. And you know that real fat calf we've been saving for a really special day? Well, you grab that sucker and you butcher that sucker, and we're going to have a barbecue, and we're going to celebrate. For the son, the son of mine was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost. And it's found. So they began to celebrate. That's grace. That's our God. God is good all the time. 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 All the time. Every time. Grace is just who God is. He can't help it. Fourth truth is grace. Believe in it and be changed by it. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, he said, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, my studies for today's conversation, I, I ran across this saying. Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. And, and understand, if you're a Jesus follower, you do have a past. And you know what? It is good for you and I to remember our past. It's good for you and I to remember how deep, how dark, how stinky, how nasty, how maggot-infested that pit was that Jesus pulled us out of the day he found us. And if you're a sinner, then by God's grace, you can have a wonderful future if you'll just surrender to him and trust him as your Lord and as your Savior. And notice Notice the order of Jesus' words to the woman. They're very important. Jesus didn't say, sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. See, that's what religious people like to say. Clean up your act, and then I will accept you. Jesus says, no, Jesus says, no, here's my way. I'm going to forgive you, and then I'm going to fill you with the power that will clean up your act. Because you can't do it on your own. Understand, religion says change or I will condemn you. Religion uses fear and intimidation to make people measure up, and it never works. And grace says, I have forgiven you. Now let me also help change you into something new, into something different, into something better. You need me. You need my help. You can't do this yourself. You see, we don't change in order to be accepted. We change because we've already been accepted. 
We don't change in order to be accepted. We change because we've been accepted. Understand, nothing motivates and nothing empowers new life. Nothing motivates and empowers new life and life change more than the grace of God. Listen, grace does what rules never could and never will be able to do. Grace actually changes us. Max Lucada, or Lakata, or tomato, or tomata, potato, patata, granada, grenada. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> no purpose in that. Uh, maybe so. Anyhow, Max ends his book on grace, his last chapter of this book called Simply Grace, with these beautiful words. I mean, Max can just do it. More than a verb, more than a noun, more present than past tense, grace didn't just happen, it happens. The same work God did through Christ long ago on the cross is the work God does through Christ right now in you. Let him do his work. Let grace trump your arrest record, critics, and guilty conscience. See yourself for what you are, God's personal remodeling project, not a work to yourself, but a work in his hands. No longer defined by your failures, but refined by them. Trusting less in what you do and more in what Christ did. Grace, let it, let him, so seep into the crusty cracks of your life that everything softens. Then, let it, let him, bubble up to the surface like a spring in the Sahara. In words of kindness and deeds of generosity, God will change you. You are a trophy of his kindness, a partaker of his mission, not perfect by any means, but closer to perfection than you've ever been. This happens when grace happens. Maple Grove, grace, believe in it. Stand on it and be changed by it. And, you know, I'm convinced this morning that God's grace wants to find some people in this room today. And some for the, for the very first time, like Grace found 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You know, there, there, there's some people who, you know, you've been checking out Jesus, you've been checking out church, but there's something that, that you need to do. You, you've not yet surrendered to him in, in baptism. And, and, and we have Peter on preaching that first sermon, the guy who experienced grace in all its fullness telling a crowd of thousands gathered that day who just realized we killed Jesus 50 days ago, not a good thing. And they're wondering, hey, what can we do to get out of this mess that we're in? And Peter said these famous words recorded in Acts 2, 2, 2 chapter 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm going to forgive your sins, you're not guilty, that's my grace, and I'm going to give you my spirit, which will enable you to become a new person, to live a new life. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Did Jesus say, does the Bible say that we should be baptized? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, if you've not made that decision, you know, I, I would just present to you the question um, asking the Bible by a guy named Ananias to a guy named Paul, what he said in Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on the name 
of the Lord. You see, baptism isn't something to debate. It's a promise to embrace. If you've not done that today, I encourage you to do that. Grace wants to find you. Let it find you the way God says it finds you. Amen? And, and, and there's some people that already are Jesus followers who grace wants to find. You know why? Because you screwed up. You messed up. You walked down the wrong road. You did something stupid, something wrong, something dishonest, something immoral. And grace wants to find you today to tell you, stop trying to earn, stop trying to deserve what is already yours, the grace of God. You'll never earn it. You will never deserve it. You see, I think, at least maybe it's for me, maybe for you too, sometimes the loudest voice in my head and the one carrying the biggest rock against me, you know what it is? It's the guy I look at in the mirror. The day God's saying, give yourself a break. You know, yeah, you're messed up. Guess what? God knew you were messed up. And God saved you, and he knew you'd mess up again. It's kind of like a parent giving their kid a credit card. Don't use this unless you need it when you go to college, right? And then they call up, and they say, hey, I'm sorry. I had to use your credit card. And you go, that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> I knew you'd mess up. I, I knew you wouldn't budget your money right. And I knew one day you would need cash and you needed to have it right then. And so I sent this card because I knew you. And see, God knew you'd fall. But he wanted to pick you back up. So, so quit being so hard on yourself. Quit trying to earn what is a gift. Amen? I mean, Scripture says, does it not, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful, right? Not, not, not you. He's faithful and just. And will forgive you of all sin and unrighteousness, every bit of it. He'll forgive you of it. You know, a, a few weeks ago, you know, I, I, I talked about spilling coffee on the floor, doing a quiet time with God on Sunday. Really ticked off initially. Like, Seriously? I'm having a moment with you, God, and you're going to let me spill coffee? Run upstairs, I grab paper towel, wiping it off the floor. As I'm wiping it, all of a sudden, you know, spiritual truths keep pouring into my head. Like, well, that, that took like not, no time at all. A little napkin and it's gone. And what God taught me is that, you know, when I'm saved, you know, there's not a, there's not a carpet there anymore. See, if I spill that on carpet, here's this carpet from last few weeks back. Okay, that, that stain's got a lot deeper. But guess what? If you're saved, you know, your, your spirit doesn't get stained like that anymore. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You know, you know? he doesn't condemn you. He gives you the power to live a better life. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? When they were building the Golden Gate Bridge, I wasn't there, by the way. I, I, I hope the story's true, right? Um, yeah. But it wasn't going so well because people were, like, falling off the bridge and dying. And, and that tends to hinder your work effort and make you, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to fall off the beam. You know, and, and, and what they did is, is they put a net underneath. And they found that, you know, when guys fell... When the first guy fell, they really said, okay, the net's going to work. <laughs> okay, it's like, okay, I know there's a net, but who's going to be the first one to fall? Whoa, dude, that actually caught the guy. And they began to work a lot faster, and they actually had less people falling off. And see, that's what grace is in your life as a believer. You know, it's there to catch you. It, it, you. You have a safety net, Jesus follower. It's called the grace of God. And we're going to close sing a, a, a song about grace and and, and uh you know, I wasn't there when Jesus wrote in the sand, and I'm not sure what he wrote, 
But I kind of like the idea that, that Max Lucatus says it may be what he wrote. And, and maybe he did write this. Because she was expecting condemnation. You know, and maybe as her face was in the dirt and shame, she saw written in that sand, grace happens here. Grace always happens at the feet of Jesus. And there is no more powerful force in this universe than the grace of God. Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 6, he said this, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. That's good. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Maple Grove, God's grace is deeper and stronger and broader and more powerful and more beautiful and more sustaining and more life-changing than we could ever imagine. And as Peter said, stand firm in it. Stand firm on it. And we want to be a church where grace happens here. We want to be a church that, it, that breathes in God's grace and then breathes out God's grace and dispenses it to this world. Would you stand and pray with me? And if you need prayer, our elders are always available after the service. If you need to make a decision today of any kind, you want to come up here and just pray, feel free to do that. Heavenly Father, God, we humbly come into your presence, and God, thank you for knowing what we needed. Thank you for throwing that net underneath our life before we even accepted you, knowing that we would need your grace not just to save us, but your grace to sustain us and to change us. And God, I pray that as we sing this song, we just celebrate your grace. No matter what we're facing, what we're what, what challenges are coming our way, God? I pray that we allow your grace to find us, God, and we celebrate our salvation. We celebrate our rescue. We celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.